Welcome back to GLF Live, the official podcast of the Global Landscapes Forum. Today, we're going to be talking about racism. Specifically, we'll be exploring what racism has to do with climate change and why we can't fully address one issue without tackling the other. Whether it's rich Western countries being primarily responsible for climate change, or indigenous people and people of color living near toxic facilities, there are so many cases where climate justice and racial justice intersect. So what can we do about it? Let's find out. Over to our host for this episode, Selena Abraham. So just thank you so much, Harshini, for being with us today. We're really happy to have you. My first question is, how are you doing? It's a tough time for the world. <laughs> how? What's up? Whew. I mean, it has been a little bit challenging <laughs> in the last few weeks. In particular, I mean, we're just at the uh, a moment of finishing up this Biden climate task force that I was a participate in and we're currently creating the platform for the Democratic Party on climate change, but a number of other issues as well. And so it's been a very full up week, um, keeping my head above the water, but you know, those COVID numbers and death numbers and, and so on and so forth keep increasing. Obviously we just had uh, a mass uprising. We're still in the middle of an uprising against white supremacy, both in this country that has also affected uh, our global society. And so it's been it's been interesting and and difficult times, but I think also really ripe with opportunity. And that's what I'm trying to focus on. That's great. Yeah, I think we're all trying to hold on to as much hope as possible. It's it's difficult, but um, yeah, the responsibilities we all have on our shoulders are are heavy, but it should inspire us and, and strengthen us as we move forward. Um, yeah, I just want to talk, we're, we're going to talk about kind of the weaving of different narratives. And I think it's so important to acknowledge that how you frame a problem determines how you develop solutions. So mm. do you see it as all integrated? Are these problems distinct in your head? So when we talk about racial equity and climate change narratives, do you think that bringing them together comes off as too much, too many problems to tackle at once? Or do you think this is actually an effective approach to building activist movements in tandem and, and creating greater change? Yeah, I get this question a lot. Um, people look at the, something like the Green New Deal, right, which mm-hmm. aims to tackle the triple threats of the climate crisis, of economic inequality, of racial injustice, and says that for the first time in our history, we have to tackle these crises these crises collectively, uh, or we cannot tackle any of them at all. Um, And I think that is a far more effective way of addressing this crisis than we have seen previously. I think for the last 40 years, we've seen climate advocates attempt to talk about this as a decarbonization problem, or try to talk about it as as purely a, 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 a uh, scientific and physical problem. Um, but I think when we get into the, the the fact that the climate crisis is not just about carbon in the atmosphere or parts per million or whatever that is or degrees, this is a question of do people have adequate water? Do they have adequate shelter? Do they have land? Do they have communities? Um, do they have jobs? Do they have livelihoods that are worth living, that are uh, dignified? And what we find is that the climate crisis threatens or threatens to worsen vers- virtually every issue that people face in our nation uh, and around the world. And so um, what the Green New Deal and, and what crises like this what, what solutions like the, the Green New Deal attempt to do is fight for solutions that are actually commensurate to the scale of the crisis and refuse to leave communities in the global south behind, refuse to leave people of color behind or workers behind um, and say, we will only contest for solutions that meet the full scape of scale of the problem without leaving anybody behind in the transition. I think it's it's really important for us also to like to, to think about the dominant narrative on climate that you've been talking about. And, and sometimes there's just this focus on technology and science mm-hmm. and markets. Um, and then you've got climate justice and you're talking about morals and ethics and responsibility and right. vulnerability. Um, and it's really interesting, I think, for us to maybe take on that mind shift to really think deeply about 
who is responsible, who is vulnerable, how do we protect them in this solution building? Um, I'm really curious because you have a heritage from Southern India and how has this shaped your views on how racial and ethnic inequities are interwoven with frequent natural disasters? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say, so I'm the child of two South Indian immigrants. I wasn't born in India, but it's a place that I have visited often and that feels like, you know, it feels like home. It feels, I, I feel a deep connectivity to it, even if I um, was was born and raised in, in America. Um, and I think one of the moments when I fully woke up to the um, immediacy of the climate crisis was when I watched a series of an extremely strong um, monsoon season uh, create these floods where my family's from in southern India and watched like the entire state where my dad and, and grew up be deluged in just like feet and feet of water um, and saw these like horrific images of 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 um, mothers and children kind of walking like waist deep chest deep in water um, seeing all of these um, uh fisher people being the ones that have to rescue folks from their homes like seeing old people being elder people being left in their homes for for days without electricity or food or water um and realizing like when i called my grandmother to just check in on on our family members and and our uh, you know her apartment and all of that um realizing that there was a um that my grandparents were extremely lucky to have been traveling or out of town at that time. Um, and if they hadn't been, they might have been those folks who either uh, were left stranded in their apartments or their homes or, you know, what are elderly people supposed to do in the midst of a, a, a deluge like this? Um, and, and realizing that like hundreds and thousands of people were not quite so lucky. Um, even in the last few weeks, you know, seeing these horrific monsoon seasons, um, in other parts of India that have literally displaced for, I think it was like millions and millions of people. Um, and it happens almost on a yearly basis now, uh, seeing the immediacy of the climate crisis and the ways in which people are suffering from drought, they're suffering from um, increasing storms and seeing the way in which the global south is not waiting till 2050 to feel these impacts, like it is hitting people right now and i think that was one of the biggest impetuses for me saying um the existing climate movement the existing uh movements that we have right now are not actually doing enough they're not going to scale they're not unapologetically calling for the solutions that we need they are not unapologetically calling out the leaders who are failing us mm -hmm. um and doing all of that led me to actually like recognizing all of that in that moment was a lot of what led me to to bringing some friends together to actually start the sunrise movement yeah i think what scares me the most about this crisis is and also being a, an immigrant to the us with family in, in east africa it was it's the loss of like culture and community mm -hmm. and history um mm -hmm. and I, I don't know there's this very visceral reaction to like all of that mm -hmm. being um and being in the US, right, you can experience this, you're living in that divide every day, like standing at yeah. that intersection as well between yeah. poverty and like excessive consumption and production yeah. and abundance. Um, and it's something that I think is so hard to communicate to people. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just curious how you, you know, you are inherently probably aware of that, right? And you had that experience with saying, I see these two and these don't match up. How do you communicate with other people and how do you find that like these discussions with young people in the US, how do you convince them that like climate justice is absolutely crucial and that there is this different reality? How, how are you navigating that with the yeah. I mean, honestly, when we started actually looking into this and researching this question, we realized it's far less of an issue of people don't care mm -hmm. and far more of an issue of um, that, that there's actually a difference between what people care about and how responsive our political institutions are to what people's needs are and what they want. So what we found was that there is actually overwhelming support in the United States for climate action. Amongst young people, that is like, I mean, it skyrockets, like 90 plus percent of young people believe that we should be moving towards a renewable energy economy. Like 77 percent 
or 70%, something between 70 and 77% of young people uh, in a poll that was conducted a little while ago uh, of both political parties actually support supported a lot of the goals of a Green New Deal. And so we're seeing that amongst young people, it's far less of a politicized partisan issue around mm -hmm. climate change. And people viscerally also understand, I think in, in, in new ways and generationally amongst young people, the connections between climate change, racism, and uh, and classism or or the you know economic injustices that we see in our society, um, and so the 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 task at hand is actually less of you know less about educating people about the science or educating people that it's an issue. People understand that it's an issue. It's actually translating that from a sort of um, yes, I understand the issue to now I'm willing to take action on it. And that is the transformation that I think movements are really uh, working to compel. And, and that's where our kind of like role is, is in translating that level of um, fear and pain and suffering and anger and hope and optimism for the future um, into tangible polit political victories and creating a political vehicle that can actually um, encompass all of that and and translate it into strategic action taking. Yeah, and what an incredible task, right? To take people from this level <laughs> of I'm aware, I understand it's a problem, to then channeling that to I'm engaged and then translating that to somehow structural exactly. policy change. I think that, um, yeah, it's really interesting to talk about activism and, and policy because we've, I mean, we, we've really been involved, we've seen the protests, we've you know, the Fridays for Future every Friday, but then you you start to question when you're going out there every Friday or you're, you're coming to the international climate cops, when are we gonna actually see this energy right. translated into tangible change? Right. Um, and so I'm just curious, because Sunrise has taken civic involvement to a new level. You had sit-ins at Nancy Pelosi's office, getting presidential candidates to pledge to not accept uh, funds from fossil fuel companies. What have you found are the most effective ways to actually change policy? Yeah, I mean, so I think the, uh, this kind of goes back to what we understand to be our theory of change. And so what a theory of change is, is what it sounds like. It's like how you understand change being made in a society. And there are lots of ways of making change, right? Um, the core ways that Sunrise understands making change is sort of threefold. One, we really believe that we need a large, vocal, very active, uh, often disruptive force mm -hmm. of primarily young people um, to be out there calling for the scale of action that we need. So this is in, um, this could be, you know, conducting office visits and making our voices heard to politicians. It could be protests and demonstrations like you've seen. It could be grassroots organizing and training and uh, mobilization in different ways. It could be participating in the climate strikes. It's basically a, a slew of, of things that we do to generate um, uh, a level of urgency and a sense of, you know, yes, this is the, the climate crisis is act like forcing our politicians and our power holders to treat the cr crisis like the emergency that it is. The second part of our theory of change is really around political power. And we realize that no matter how much people power you have, if you are just a bunch of individuals railing against a system that is pretty much unaccountable to you or um, fully um, uh, has divergent values and, and a different value system than what you have, you're not gonna be able to succeed. And so, you know, one of the biggest pieces of this is how do we actually elect um, politicians to office who are actively vociferously supportive of and ready to put all of it on the line for our issues. Um, and so that can include you know, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, it can include people like Rashida Tlaib, um, Jamal Bowman, who a bunch of Sunrisers just got elected to uh, office in New York 16. And so um, we need both this, this um, the, the, the people power side of it, but we also need the political power side of it. And without both of those things working in tandem, we actually can't achieve the level of institutionalization of everything that we're shouting for in the streets to actually enter Congress, to pass Congress, to be implemented, and then to be enforced. Um, so that's kind of how we understand our uh, our theory of change. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because like there's theories of change, right? Which sometimes can be your dream of how you think it could work. And then there's reality. And I, mm-hmm. it's just amazing to see how you have, as an organization and, an, and a coalition of, of young people have really got it spot on. Because you're at this point now where you're working with Biden on his climate change task force mm-hmm. and have this huge opportunity. And I'm just curious, one, um, what has that process been like? And then two, how can this be a vehicle for change, not only for climate, chain like the climate crisis climate action but also racial equality which is an evolving conversation right now in the u.s yeah yeah i mean so the biden task force process is actually so it's completed it finished a couple weeks ago and was a very quick six-week intensive process that basically got a platform ready to inform um both Joe Biden's climate policy, but also to inform the Democratic National Convention party-wide platform that will be voted on in the next couple of weeks. Um, so this was, um, honestly, it was kind of nerve wracking to be on this task force. Like I was the youngest task force member out of all, I think 40 something members of, of the task forces. Um, I, yeah, like it was a huge honor to have Bernie Sanders say like that he really believed in me and to advocate for me to be on this, on that task force. And it was also, I was um, actually kind of amazed to see Joe Biden say that he would also have me on there, given that Sunrise has not been um, limited in its criticism of Joe Biden. Um, but it was a really fascinating process and I learned a lot from it. I mean, and, and it was complicated to be a part of, right? Like young people, Uh, there's a real generational divide in our country. And uh, overwhelmingly young people in the Democratic primary voted for Bernie Sanders and overwhelmingly older folks voted for Joe Biden. Um, And so many folks in our base were really skeptical. They were like, is this process going to do anything? Are they just using our name? Like, I don't know. Like they had questions about it, right? And I think all of those questions are really valid. Um, I think my goal going in was to really push on a few, a couple things with Joe Biden, uh, Joe Biden's climate plan. One was that we had to move these dates up in terms of our benchmarks for decarbonizing our economy. And we had to do it in really just and equitable ways. Um, so that was one thing, 2050 dates, way too late. The United States has to be a global leader in getting to you know net zero greenhouse gas emissions. We have to do it like decades before 2050 if we expect the rest of the world to follow our lead. Um, And then the second priority was to essentially say environmental justice and climate justice. So uh, addressing the um, inherent inequalities in our system that lead to some people breathing uh, worse quality air than other people, some people experiencing the brunt of storms and being able to recover far slower than other people um, that and 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 those lines almost always falling on lines of race and class and gender um, that 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 we had to put into place anti-racist anti-classist policies um, and that that had to be at the heart of of everything in our climate agenda um, and so I'm kind of proud to say that like with a lot of our our advocacy and and uh, a lot of the Biden folks being pretty amenable and also you know, really like high powered individuals on this task force like AOC and uh, Mm -hmm. environmental justice leader Catherine Flowers, we were able to push them considerably. Um, The Biden campaign moved from um, saying that they would put in place a $1.7 trillion plan uh, over 10 years to saying they would do a $2 trillion plan in four years. So that's like a 200% increase in ambition. And they said that 40% of that investment will go directly to disadvantaged communities, 40%. So that's really, really significant. Um, And is it on par with actually some of the most ambitious uh, climate policies that we saw being fought for in states like New York City, in uh, New York. Um, And so, you know, there were a number of things that we want on this. Uh, We moved their timelines for achieving 100% clean electricity up by 15 years. We established an environmental justice fund that directly supports to get lead out of water pipes, um, to stop contamination of water and air, to declare that 
um, uh, toxic pollution sites that have been particularly hurting black communities um, have to be cleaned up. We mm -hmm. supported them to uh, adopt measures to expand indigenous sovereignty to basically say things like the Keystone XL pipeline and Dakota Access pipeline that go through native land and were actually, uh, particularly in the case of the Dakota Access pipeline, um, white communities refused to have that pipeline go through their land so they rerouted it through native communities um, to say that those kinds of fights never have to happen again because indigenous communities will be consented will 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 be consulted and then have to consent to major infrastructure uh, projects before they're actually constructed um, so there were a number of victories yeah. i think there's a lot that still has to get won the the, the challenge with the climate crisis is that it's relentless and brutal and it does not give um it doesn't give a shit <laughs> whether you like where you were before based off where you are now like yeah, it no. only cares about what how much carbon is in the atmosphere and yeah. and we're on a timeline unfortunately because we've stayed action for so long that even the most ambitious plans may not be enough to no. prevent the worst of the climate crisis so always yeah. have to keep pushing well, first off, congratulations. Um, that is incredible. And it, it, I, I know that so many of the young people who are so excited about the Sanders campaign and this this movement that we've been a part of for years were happy to see that come together um, yeah. and, and to hear from you, from someone who's on the task force, speaking positively about how you are able to really push and push um, is amazing to hear. And I think it also is a testament to this to what we may not do enough, which is talk to the other side. Um, because we have, yes, generational divides, but we also have I, divides in ideology um, and, and so many different ways in the way we see the world. And I think too often um, we're not willing to go into those uncomfortable spaces to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, there's criticism involved with that. And um, even though it's within the same party, it's amazing to still see how much progress was accomplished through right bringing the same people to the table and having that conversation. Um, so I, I'm just wondering kind of maybe where you draw the line. If Biden doesn't win, would you approach the Trump administration? Um, <laughs> and how would you work with them on issues of climate change? Or just even more broadly, like how is this Sunrise is a youth-led movement? How are you thinking about involving those on the other side of the aisle too? Maybe starting with a younger generation who might be closer to the same page. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll be totally honest. I don't really see a pathway to working with the Trump administration. I think they've made it pretty clear where their allegiance lies. Um, they did that by, you know, <laughs> hiring former CEOs of ExxonMobil to, you know, be Secretary of State and and um, uh, figuring every way that they can to prop up the oil and gas industry during COVID um, while letting the renewable energy sector basically um, suffer hugely. So I think to me, if we lose this presidential election in November, it is extremely bad news for our ability to do anything on federal policy for the next four years. I think there's still options. Like I think we can continue to sort of, you know, everything that's happened with the Green New Deal has happened under a Trump administration. So there's a lot of work that you can do to uh, align the Democratic Party around the true solutions to the climate crisis, which is a lot of what has happened in the last four years. Um, the fact that Joe Biden's climate plan is actually going to be in 2020 will be more progressive than Bernie Sanders' climate plan in 2016 is huge, huge progress. Um, so we can make things like that really happen at the federal level. And I think there's all it's always worth contesting for, but we can't get anywhere close to implementation um, of, of actual policy until we have terrain that is more amenable and to change and, and being pushed than a Trump administration. Um, but I think there's a lot of work that can be done at the state and local level. And I think, you know, so there's actually interesting polling that came out earlier this year that showed that um, the best way to um, win back swing voters, so people that voted for Trump uh, in 2016 but might vote for other politicians in mm -hmm. 2020, is on climate. Um, and so there's a lot of folks who are thinking about, you know, how do we actually target 
uh, are, and reach out to, oh, and that demographic is young people. I forgot to say that part. Um, so there's a lot of um, talk out there about like, how do we actually specifically target young people who voted for Trump in 2016, but are amenable to switching in some of these swing states like Florida uh, in 2020. And that is like a, um, a um, big conversation that I think could actually help us win in, in, in November. Yeah, that's great to hear. Um, and I think it's interesting to think about how the current state of probably U.S. administration, and, and this is the case with every government, you, you have conditions that are comfortable to work with and are easier mm -hmm. to kind of facilitating the change that needs to happen and others that are not. Um, so I think it's interesting because this conversation, not just on climate action, but on racial justice is happening in the U.S. And a lot of that also, um, the transformative change that people want to see in their communities yeah. is also largely going to be influenced by this this election. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's really an important opportunity for us to have a conversation on activism and the lessons learned that we can have. And so I think similar to Black Lives Matter, it's, your own Sunrise Movement has experienced like a huge growth period. Um, and I'm just curious to know more about the tipping point that brought you from being a startup initiative, um, your group of friends coming together and talking <laughs> about climate to an act, a national international mobilization of youth activists and people who are now excited to hear from you, wanting to kind of learn from your lessons. What's been the reason for your success and what lessons could you kind of offer other groups around the world? Yeah. It's a great question. So uh, you mentioned the sit-in at Nancy Pelosi's office earlier mm -hmm. in this segment, and I would say that was our real, I guess you could think of it as a breakout moment. Um, and for those who are listening or watching who don't know what happened there, um, in the fall of 2018, uh, about 200 Sunrisers, just days after Democrats took back the House of Representatives in the midterm elections in 2018, um, conducted a sit-in at Nancy Pelosi's office to say, we just elected you to, um, to office and we helped you take back the house. Now we need you to be accountable to young people and we need you to one, back the Green New Deal and two, swear off for any Democrat that wants to claim the mantle of leadership in this party to swear off taking any oil and gas money um, from here on out. And, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez actually joined us. It was her first day in like training to be a Congress member. She was just a representative elect at that time. She ended up coming by and, you know, supporting us. Um, and it just absolutely took off. There were like 5,000 articles written about it within 48 hours. It was a huge moment. It propelled the Green New Deal into the national conversation um, and was a real game-changing moment for the discourse on climate in, in American politics and also around the world. Um, and I would say there are a couple things that were key to our success in that moment. Um, one was being able to define the moment proactively rather than reactively. And so many movements and organizations had for a really long time said, okay, we have a new, uh, we have a new uh, session of Congress. We're gonna wait a few months, see what happens and then react to things that Congress does. Yeah. Um, and we said, no, actually what we wanna do is define the terms of the debate about climate change for the next two years and make climate change a core issue for the Democratic Party. And we knew we couldn't do that if we waited a year to see what the Democrats would do. We knew they wouldn't take action on climate. And so we actually had a proactive strategy that centered the climate crisis in the debate and refused to let them look away from the issue. And because of that, the climate crisis has essentially dominated our news and um, and our conversation for months, if not years. And now the Green New Deal is basically one of the core litmus tests for uh, for Democrats and one of the key issues that we talk about whenever we discuss you know, the, the road to the 2020 election um, or differences between Democrats and Republicans. Um, so that that's one thing. The other thing is I think we are we are not afraid. Um, for a long time, the climate movement uh, would only go after Republicans. And yes, Republicans uh, are definitely an issue. They are definitely one of the core impediments to progress. Um, they take 80 to 90% of campaign contributions from oil and gas executives. They're basically uh, 
the Koch brothers basically um, uh, control that entire party. Um, and they have been the chief architects of like climate denialism alongside uh, fossil fuel industry and uh, companies. Um, I think the key though, was that we had a, one Democrat, one party, the Democrats, who said that they believed in the climate crisis, they understood the science, so on and so forth, but they weren't willing to actually stick their necks out on the issue and push hard on it uh, and make it a priority in American politics, say they the way that they would on an issue like healthcare. Um, and then you had a Republican party that was saying climate change is not real, there's two sides to this issue, blah, 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 and was basically, uh, the conversation was stymied in, is this is the climate crisis real or not, which is an industry manufactured debate. Mm -hmm. um, and what that moment did was say, no, actually, we're not going to go easy on Democrats either. Republicans definitely are messing things up, but you guys are not fighting nearly as hard as you need to be on this issue. And so I would say to anybody out there who is an activist or who is organizing all these issues to not to strategically intervene in both um, the people who uh, are actively holding back progress, but also uh, folks like Democrats who might be resting on their laurels and saying, yes, I believe in the science, but not actually willing to take dramatic action to do anything about it. Um, and then I think, you know, the power of story was just unbelievable in that moment. Like we had, I remember the horrific California fires were literally on the screen in Nancy Pelosi's office while one of our leaders, Claire, was talking about how her aunt and uncle's house had just burned down in California in that same fire while we were at, like, at that, um, uh, at that office. And so the, the powerful act of young people, you know, communicating, um, this is, you know, this is a crisis right now. This is an emergency right now. What is your plan? What is your plan to stop this? We don't want to hear, yes, we understand the issue. We want to know what the hell are you going to do about it? Um, and I think that was a really impactful moment as well. The powerful storytelling combined with the really clear demands and questions and, and actions that um, propelled that into the national conversation. I'm, I think that's so great to hear because there's, I mean, we've got activists and all over watching with the GLF who want who identified the barriers in, in their countries or in their, their regions. And I think give, getting those lessons and being proactive versus reactive is so important because mm -hmm. so often um, the progress that you want to see can be stopped because you're like, oh, okay, we have this advocate for us and right. I'm sure they will come through and they will, you know, we talked about it in that one conversation. So let me just sit and, and see what happens. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's where opportunity and time is lost and time is what we don't have. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I just want to take some questions from the audience. I see Mayumi is watching. She is uh, one of our kind of youth advocates has been through a youth and landscapes workshop before. Um, she's curious to know how has your theory of change been informed by other um, kind of global anti-racist or climate movements, given that the ways that people express their resistance globally um, doesn't always manifest in kind of overt ways? That's a great question. Um, so before we started Sunrise, we spent about a year in study of different various social movements. Um, I will say a lot of them were US focused because we were developing a movement for the US context. So we were uh, looking at the women's suffrage movements. We were looking at um, uh, immigrant rights movements of the, particularly in the early 2000s. Um, we studied deeply the civil rights movement, um, but we also were looking at uh, movements like the um, Indian independence movement and studying like Gandhian nonviolence discipline and uh, the role of that in um, how that can translate to U.S. context, which obviously the civil rights movement was heavily, heavily um, um, inspired by uh, Gandhian nonviolence. Um, we, you know, studied the um, poor resistance uh, against the dictator of uh, Milosevic that actually ultimately ended up, uh, uh, that was in Serbia and was a bunch of young people that were actually ultimately able to overthrow the, a dictator um, and studying the, the, the 
creative tactics and mobilizations and protest movements um, by young Serbians was actually one of the biggest inspirations for um, a, a, a framework and, and um, theory of change called momentum, which actually has informed most of the bedrock of the sunrise um, uh, of our like foundations in terms of our theory of change. So those are some of the global movements. I think we've also been really, I mean, like a lot of contemporary movements have been shaping our way of thinking as well, like everything from um, the climate strikes to also like the indigenous uprisings against the Dakota Access Pipeline, which yes, started in the US, but have a huge like, uh, we're definitely an international movement and coming together of, of indigenous peoples, which was just amazing. Um, and yeah, I would say those are like some of the primary primary movements that have informed us. It's great to hear because, you know, movements are so powerful and and um, we've talked about this even here with the GLF for Youth and Landscapes where you're talking about a restoration movement or one that's like in protecting nature and restoring nature, yeah. um, but also acknowledging that a lot of these movements are going to have to converge and build in order to create the, the long-term kind of impact that we want and looking back right. is really important. Um, we have another question. Uh, which is how has being a young person affected your work in activism and how has your age benefited you or hindered you in that? Mm, great question. Um, well, I love being a young person. It's fun. I don't know how much longer I can say that for, but we'll Maybe see. <laughs> um, I think the best part about being young is you're just not stuck in the rules of yesterday. Like you are not stuck in this is the way that things are this is how much change can happen uh, what you're asking for is too radical what you're asking for is impossible like young people are so powerful because we just don't put up with this 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 argument of what you are asking for is too much um and to that every single time when i work with young people they say why not um, I feel like, you know, as you get older and older, maybe the question you ask is, is why or how or it's or you just say it can't be done. Um, and so young people just haven't felt that level of resignation or jadedness or whatever it is. And, and I think that's infinitely powerful. Um, I think the piece, let's see, um, what, the, what has been hard? Oh, great question. I think just having to be responsible for so much at such a young age, you know, kids say this all the time. Like we had um, one of our phone banking captains. So the person who was um, responsible for pulling together hundreds or thousands of volunteers to make calls to voters to elect climate champions to office, uh, like was 14 and another one was 16. Right. And that is empowering that is so powerful that these young women are like at the helm of our movement like young women of color are at the helm um doing this kind of organizing and feeling that level of power and i'm like i just want you to be able to go like hang out with your friends yeah. and yeah. i don't know talk about stuff that just doesn't matter so much i don't know just like live a carefree life and i feel that about myself too like I had to manage people and budgets and organizations and make extremely difficult decisions and front load movements and all of that at the age of like 22. Um, I've never actually like worked at an organization and just like had a manager or a boss or somebody that's just like mentoring me. Like I've all like from the age of 20, 22, 23, 20, 21 sometimes, like I was always the like elder or like the support person for somebody else. And sometimes it's like, um, when you're always expected to be the mentor or the leader, um, you don't get to be led or you don't oftentimes get to be just held uh, in ways that other people might. And so that's something that I feel like I wish I had had more of and wish I could have just kind of like explored and understood the world a little bit more. But, you know, there's also something to be said for just being thrown in the deep end. And now it's like... <laughs> I have grown more than I ever thought would be possible in the last two years just because, you know, there weren't people to do the things we were trying to do. So we just did them ourselves. 
Yeah, but I think, you know, you touched on that. It's so important, like the role of mentorship um, in that. And I completely agree. I've been seeing even my uh, youngest cousin, Naomi, she's, I mean, I learned more from her Instagram, like in terms of, activity. like, I am just like, how are you so on it? I was not yeah. that 15 years old. You know, my activism came at like 19 in college. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, instituting ways that we can not only mentor and like support those that are coming, but like, I, yeah, as, as a leader of a youth organization, like where, where are you going to find that for yourself? Yeah. Um, but totally. yeah, I did a comment from someone, uh, Honora Buras from Louisiana, who said, and I think this is an extension, he's glad to see the activism of this generation, but many of us baby boomers and other generations have also been fighting <laughs> for, environment for decades. So don't rule working out or don't rule out working with us. Definitely. Um, <laughs> and we, that's a great, I love that point. Thank you for making it. And it's like, like we created Sunrise to be youth led because when sometimes when you have intergenerational spaces, it can be hard for young people to actually like find their voice or find their leadership or or kind of like feel like they have the agency to actually speak up and be leaders in their own right. But we work with tons of other organizations that are extremely multi-generational or made up of baby boomers or older folks. And um, it's it's like we need that we need it, it is an all hands on deck moment to stop the climate crisis like let's be clear about that young people cannot do it by ourselves we do not expect to be doing this by ourselves we wanted you know we understand the role that young people play in in changing society like many of the things we have more time on our hands we're passionate we're like unapologetic you know we a lot of those things are are really powerful about young people, but we definitely need other generations to be teaming up with alongside us. And what's been exciting about this moment is that like following in the footsteps of Sunrise, um, there are other organizations that are literally creating the like older generation, like the movement for people that's like 40 and up that can work kind of arm in arm. It's actually called arm in arm, that can work kind of collectively with organizations like Sunrise, having the same theory of change um, and kind of broader understanding of how we're moving towards change collectively, which is really exciting and like wouldn't have been possible a few years ago. That's amazing. Um, there's another question. I think people are in love with this theory of change. Um, <laughs> from uh, Ahimbi Sibwe Viani, who asks, Thanks for the great insight and work. Sometimes we need to change direction and focus on the beliefs, values, and norms held by the people in charge of policy change. Mm. How different are they in line with those of local people? And how is this considered in line with your theory of change? So kind of looking at these values. Oh, yes, I love that question. Um, yeah, this is the biggest problem, right? Like, I yeah. would say a lot of, like when we did polling on the Green New Deal, like a majority of Republicans actually support the aims of the Green New Deal. But when it gets pummeled in Fox News and all of these, um, you know, when right wing uh, politicians are constantly like, ah, this is communism, this is a terrible thing, like these people are crazy and, you know, our, uh, the fossil fuel industry is ca calling it extremism, et cetera, et cetera. When we're just asking for literally the bare minimum that's in line with the science, um, everything gets skewed. And so I think this is a huge issue is that like, there is a big difference between what people's values are and where our politicians are. And I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing a lot of the ruptures that we have seen, at least, uh, you know, I can speak to the American context, but I think we've seen this around the world, right? Like, um, in 2016, the race was really about the fact that people were fed up with the economic system that has reigned supreme in the United States and that has informed policy all around the country uh, in the last 40 years, which is a system that says, um, that, that touts individualism, mm -hmm. that has led to the most rampant economic inequality that we've seen in 100 years, that has ballooned the prison population by many, many hundreds of percents, that has ballooned the military, um, that has led to the climate crisis um, and then impeded our ability to take action on the climate crisis that has allowed for our schools to become basically killing fields where like thousands and thousands of, of school children are murdered every year because people we have not uh, that the power of the you know the rifle that the gun lobby is so so strong um, to prevent that. 
And so I think people are fed up and, and the election in 2016, I think why we saw the rise of Donald Trump, but also why we saw the rise of people like Bernie Sanders is because mm -hmm. there is a real fight um, for the soul of our nation happening right now. We are at a crossroads where basically we can move towards a politics of inclusion, um, of, of democratic control, of community, of, 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 of acceptance of, of lots of different types of people, or we can move towards a politics of hate and division that people like Donald Trump represent. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, the fight that Sunrise um, needs to engage in alongside many of the partners in the movement for black lives, in uh, immig young immigrant justice movements, in, in March for Our Lives, which is the um, uh, young people who are fighting against um, uh, gun violence. Like a lot of these organizations are coming together to say we actually need a completely new system and common sense in this country. We need a new set of values that govern this country that are based in the, the values of justice and equity, inclusion. Um, and that is actually like the fight that we are engaged in on a macro scale. That's kind of like the, like for the sake of what are we doing all of this? It's so that we can actually like fundamentally shift who our society protects and supports, who our government, what the role of government is and what the role of government should be. Um, you know, is it to send unmarked police officers and members of border patrol to American cities to kidnap uh, protesters protesting violence or is uh, police brutality or is it um, to actually unleash levels of investment in communities that make the need for police virtually non-existent because people's needs are met um yeah. and so yeah that's a bit of what i would say it's a big question but hopefully i know we could talk about this forever and i'm <laughs> i'm already here holding you longer than a normal glf live um two more questions one question from uh, someone in the audience called selena uh will you run for office <laughs> maybe <laughs> we'll see i'm like i i would I definitely would consider it. Um, right now, I'm like, wow, I feel like I'm doing a lot that feels really meaningful and impactful. And so it feels like something that would absolutely be in the cards down the road and um, maybe not in the next like six to 10 months, but I feel, I feel very excited about that potentially down the road. It's incredible. It's, it's great to hear. I think making our, uh, we constantly talk about um, being in dialogue with decision makers, but just becoming a decision maker is also an option. Um, yep. yep. That, that's a very powerful way that we can. Uh, totally. So. Totally. Um, and then lastly, I just want to kind of talk about representation a bit in, in the kind of climate space, because I remember there was mm -hmm. that scandal when uh, it was Davos and Greta and some European climate activists, and then Vanessa Bush from uh, Uganda, who is an African climate activist, who was cropped yeah. out that photo. Yeah. And that was one of those big moments. And I think this is something that is so present, especially in international and global spaces, where those that are have privilege are, are there and those that don't are not represented yeah. yet. So I, I'm just curious, how can we ensure that the climate movement is an inclusive space for people of color, marginalized groups, that th these are also the ones who are at the front line and, and yep. uh, shown as leaders? What are your thoughts on this? Yes, I think this is super important. And I think it's one of those things that, like, I don't think Sunrise has gotten perfect yet. I don't think we, like, I think we have a lot of work to do here as well. And part of this is like climate movements also inheriting the, like, inherent whiteness and classism that existed in the environmental movement for a really, really long time. Um, but I think this is critical. Like, I think if we want leaders who, like many of the things that Greta Thunberg has been saying have been said by <laughs> lots of indigenous leaders, lots of uh, black and brown leaders, uh, particularly folks from island nations for so yeah. long about the climate crisis. And yet, you know, um, like, no, no, like hate towards Greta Thunberg at all. I think she's brilliant and amazing. You know, those folks have not been uplifted in nearly the same ways. Um, and I think it's blatant racism. Um, and so I think we've got to keep fighting for this partially because I think those closest to the pain are able to speak towards the solutions that we need with the greatest level of clarity. Um, I think that 
people who come from the communities that are the most impacted are the ones that we should be following in terms of the level of solutions, in terms of the scale of them, in terms of the timelines of them and, and, and all of that. Um, I think that, you know, it's high time that we actually use this moment around the climate crisis to flip the script on who gets incorporated into moments of economic prosperity or moments of mass transformation in this country and around the world. And if we view this, um, the level of action that needs to be taken to address the climate crisis as an impetus and an opportunity to actually um, fight back against racism and white supremacy and um, capitalism and, and other issues, like, and see that as this moment, I think that we could completely change the way um, we could reverse the harms that have been done in the United States around like indigenous genocide. We could work to repair uh, the harms that have been done unto black families in the United States because of slavery. Um, and I think this is like, it is absolutely essential that those folks have community in our movements. Otherwise, I think we're just gonna be extremely hamstrung and not actually able to put forward the right solutions or have the right people in the room. Uh, we're gonna have like major blind spots. Yeah, well, I think it's amazing. I have so much hope um, having been uh, just kind of part of the this protests on the streets and seeing that kind of convergence um, and the solidarity among people, among young people, among indigenous activists, yes. and, um, people of color. Um, I have so much hope in, in the direction that we're going, especially with this generation and those champions that were also there <laughs> for many years before us. Um, thanks so much for gracing us with mm. your wisdom and your insights. Uh, I know that it's been a great way for me to spend my Friday evening and everyone else who's watching um, as well. Oh yeah, it's uh, evening for you guys. <laughs> I'm like, it's noon. <laughs> it's just the afternoon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Friday evening, yeah. Um, yeah, thank you all so for great. listening. Thanks See, for having and, and me. And just a little plug, you know, just keep on fighting for nature as well, you know, restoration. <laughs> We've yes. got to see I think the the dialogue emerged in terms of like harmony and people and nature and finding that. Um, and I'm just so glad that we have you present um, and that you're continuing to push um, both your personal limits in terms of what you can handle. But thank you for fighting for us all. Um, I think this has been really incredible yeah. for us. Yeah, and folks can follow along with the conversation or just with Sunrise and what we're doing by going to, you can go to sunrisemovement.org or you can follow us at Sunrise MVMT basically on any social media profile. Thank Platform. you so much. <laughs> yes. So definitely follow. Um, we'll, follow, we'll be posting and sharing as well after this. Thank you so much awesome. for joining. Thank Bye. you. Have Thanks everybody lot. for being here and listening. Take care. Bye everyone. If you liked what you heard today, stay tuned for another episode next week on how digital media is reshaping the way we talk about climate change. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Stitcher, and reach out to us on social media with the hashtag GLFLive. And for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, check out our website at globallandscapesforum.org. We'll see you on the next one.